Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, I've been traveling this past week, as you know, but I noticed that you have been continuing the important work in my absence and a good company man that you are i saw that you tweeted about your enjoyment of the new season of dexter um so i never did see the original run all i know is that everybody hated the original apparent series finale i mean like everybody i don't think there's a dexter fan on the planet who is okay with it um and i know nothing about what led up to it i just know that um have the last few episodes i'm very curious about this actually do you now feel better about the whole season i'm assuming you're one of those who hated the original the original finale do you feel better about how it all wrapped up and should i now knowing that these extra episodes are coming should i actually go back to the beginning should i start watching should i feel good about it and i mean how do you feel about it now it's all re-wrapped up as it were so yeah it, it is a show that i i recommend uh, binging although it requires a very specific very carefully curated binge um okay. so so here you go here's all your instructions uh for for you and anyone else who's never seen dexter seasons one two and four are all outstanding um i can't say for sure how well they hold up as it's been a long time since they are right. and i haven't rewatched them but i'm fairly confident they'll still be great so you watch seasons one and two. Uh, two is actually my personal favorite. Um, you can read a quick Wikipedia recap of what happened in season three. <laughs> okay. Then watch season four. <laughs> then read the shortest, briefest recaps you can find <laughs> of the next four seasons. And, and and maybe watch the season eight finale, the series finale at the time, just to experience for yourself one of the worst <laughs> finales in the history of television. But also to fully understand where they left off as you prepare to watch Dexter New Blood. Um, so, yeah, coming off that original finale, I had fairly low expectations for this uh, revamped series. Um, and call me a Showtime chill if you must, but I thought it was very good and the ending was almost completely satisfying. I'm hoping there will not be another season uh, that the original showrunner just wanted to come back and give it a better ending. And he did that. Um, so so there you go. I, I just gave you a 46 episode viewing plan. 47 if you suffer through the original finale for a 106 episode series. Oh, that's good. Because, as you know, I'm an exceptionally busy man. Yes. So <laughs> uh, so no, that's good. I like that. But look, it's, it's interesting how, um, you know, showrunners can take a long period of time and perhaps think about their baby and then actually come back and revisit it and fans maybe get a little nervous and then they just like knock it out of the park again i mean look again i know we're showtime shills but i mean you and i both agree that it was well worth the 25 year wait for <laughs> twin peaks the return right i mean especially that magical magical eighth episode that i know you loved just as much as I did. Yeah, here's how everyone will know that I am not a total Showtime shill. Is that uh, I, look, I was a huge Twin Peaks fan the first time around, as you were. I could not stand that revival. I, I thought it sucked, and I don't understand what chemicals in your brain were making you and other people enjoy it. Um, and I, I hope saying that doesn't cost me my podcasting gig here at Showtime. Uh, but you know, how about this to balance? Okay. My brother 
is the editor of a certain new superhero series airing on a certain non-Showtime streaming service, one that's kind of the chief rival of Showtime. Indeed. And and I'm not going to recommend it. I'm not even saying the name of the show. Uh, listeners to our podcast should only check it out if and when they've watched every single bit of content Showtime Anytime has to offer. How's that? <laughs> there you go. I love the fact that he has this niche of editing superhero-y type movies and Quentin Tarantino movies. It's, it's an interesting, very specific career path that he's taken. Well, he's basically become the go-to editor for two particular directors, and one of them does a bunch of superhero stuff. Okay, okay. And I know exactly the series that, you, that you're talking about, and I'm quite looking forward to it, actually. Okay. But anyway, let's get back to Showtime and yes. uh, the other the other word in the, in the show's title and some boxing. Um, this is... One of those little bit of everything weeks on the podcast this week. Uh, We will uh, not just open a few letters from you, the listeners, but going to rip them open uh, in a mailbag segment. I've got the mailbag sitting right here. Just shake it up a little bit. Um, And so we're ready to go with that. Um, I will rewrite modern boxing history with a top five countdown of the fights that I most wish had been 15 rounders instead of 12 rounders. Uh, I think that's going to be a segment that's going to get a lot of listeners writing into us, actually. Um, we will run through all the latest news, including, uh, forgive us if we're repeating ourselves, a slew of COVID postponements, and also a contentious lawsuit between one of the best boxers in the world and his longtime promoter. But we start with the first Showtime Championship boxing card of 2022, a triple header from the Bogata Hotel Casino in Atlantic City on Saturday. And it's headlined by the return to the ring of our guest on last week's podcast, our friend, the one, the only, the exceedingly patient with our technical difficulties, Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Yep, our bestie Gary is uh, taking on Mark Magsayo of the Philippines in his fifth defense of his featherweight alphabet belt, his fifth defense in a nearly seven-year reign, and his first fight in just under two years. Both of those are notable stats. Russell's alphabet reign is currently the longest for a male fighter in the entire sport. But at the same time, uh, if we don't count quote-unquote super titleists from the organization that still has multiple belt holders in many divisions— Russell's time span since his last defense is the longest of any title holder at one year and 348 days as of fight night. So before we break down this matchup, I want to get your thoughts on Russell from a legacy standpoint, Kieran. He's 31 and one with 18 KOs. He's now 33 years old. If his career continues along this path, how will he be remembered? And is there still time for him to change that path and rewrite the narrative? So my take on this, you'll be unsurprised, is not an especially hot one, to be honest. It's a rather uh, easy and predictable one. Um, Look, Russell, were his career to end now or to continue along the same vein, I think will be regarded with an element of regret and sadness and incompletion, if you will, what Mm -hmm. could have been. I mean, first of all, I think he should have been fighting in the DMV, the the District of Columbia, Maryland and Virginia area, and really exclusively in the DMV for almost his entire career. Look, there are times when circumstances dictate that for a bigger fight, you go to L.A. or Vegas or New York City or Atlantic City. But his default should always have been to return to fighting, I think in that area in the dmv he should have been built up much more early on to be a local not just a local and regional fighter but a local and regional star who periodically as circumstances dictated ventured elsewhere a sort of 
Tony the Tiger Lopez blueprint, if you will. Mm. Um, and I, and I th- maybe had he become more established as a regional draw, it's possible. It's possible that maybe he might have had more financial clout to make more matchups happen, possibly. Um, as it is, he has, of course, especially over the last seven or eight years, as you know, fought with just a frustrating infrequency. But I don't know that anybody would care a great deal about that were it not for the fact that he is really, really good. And yeah. that's where, you know, the sense of regret uh, and of loss and of disappointment comes in. Look, his skills are mesmeric at times, um, but we've just not seen them enough. He has, you could argue, really no truly defining win, which for a man of his skills and, and accomplishments is shocking, really. Um, and yeah, look, fans are mad at him for it. Um, but yeah, is there time? Theoretically, there's plenty of time for him mm-hmm. to turn turn it around. 33 isn't what it used to be. The man's in phenomenal shape. I mean, you know, when we, I think the last time we actually physically saw him was at um, the the press conference for the Deontay Wilder uh, uh, fight that we were at. You know, Brazil, yeah. Yeah, three years ago, I think now almost, uh, extraordinarily. And we were just marveling then that the guy just, just, walks around extraordinarily close to, to, to fight weight. So I think he's probably got a, a couple more years in him if he wants it. But for it to turn around would require a real change of, of sort of emphasis and priorities and approach, not just from him, but from his promoter, from opponents. There's just got to be just more of an effort all the way around to make these big fights happen. And I don't know where that impetus comes from. I don't know that it's necessarily gonna come from gary himself and i think that's one of the things that makes fans kind of angry and disappointed and mad but you know you and i have gotten to know him a little bit over these past few years we've talked to him quite a few times the man just has different priorities he'd like bigger fights he'd like more frequent fights at least from what he says to us but he's also one of these guys who if he can't get the bigger fights he's not going to take a bunch of lesser ones just to keep busy um he has his family he has the rest of his life. I think with the skills that he has, he should have been a Hall of Famer when he when he wraps it up. And and he's not going to be unless something changes dramatically, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, he has his family. He has the rest of his life. He I, I, I don't know that he cares if he's not going to be a Hall of Famer. I don't know that he cares unduly about what people say. When he retires, he'll have his brothers and he'll have his family and he'll have his health, you know, and he'll have his self-caught and dressed turkey every Thanksgiving <laughs> and he'll have his vegetable garden and I think he'll be just fine and yeah. um, it kind of makes me like him and commend him all the more in a way in a way but uh, but at the same time uh, it is so yeah. frustrating for so many of us and and it I think you made a, a very astute point that he doesn't have a defining win that I, I think that's absolutely true and kind of frustrating and it's sort of interesting you know if we want to play the game of how many big wins away would he be from Mm. maybe getting hall of fame consideration you know maybe a few i'll just note that his wins in for him relatively recent years over jojo diaz and kiko martinez uh have both been made to look better by what those fighters did afterward so he's got a lot of or maybe not a lot but several good wins 
but he definitely lacks that defining win and with the inactivity and the reputation that's gone along with it and all yeah it does seem like it would take a dramatic u-turn to make him a serious hall of fame candidate yeah yeah um but if he is gonna you know you know that he's he is 33 if he is gonna make something more of his boxing career he, he certainly needs to start that next phase soon and no sooner, really, than be- by beating Mark McSay on Saturday. Uh, McSay is 23-0 with 16 KOs. He was last seen on the Ugas Pacquiao undercard in August, getting off the deck to stop veteran Julio Ceja in the 10th round in what was probably the most meaningful win of his career. Uh, how impressed or unimpressed were you with McSay in that fight? Stylistically, how does he match up against the super-fast southpaw, Mr. Gary Russell? I had mixed feelings on Magsayo coming out of that Seha fight. On the plus side, first off, he's really exciting. Uh, that, that was an absolute thriller. And he can punch with both hands. A, a quick, hard left hook dropped Seha in round one. And it was two right hands that starched him in round 10. And by the way, re-watching the KO, I have some regrets about not giving it an honorable mention for knockout in mm. our year-end awards mm. podcast. That was spectacular. Seha was out cold. Um, now the negative. Maxayo does not have good defense at all. Not hard to hit to the head, not hard to hit to the body, and this was against Julio Ceja. If you can't get out of the way of his punches, good luck avoiding Gary Russell's. Um, So, bottom line, exciting fighter, big heart, probably not going all the way to the top of the sport. The Filipino fans have not found the next Pacquiao. So, uh, the style matchup with Russell, Gary Russell Jr. is, of course, a southpaw, and most orthodox fighters struggle to use the jab effectively against southpaws. And that's a big question here because Megsayo typically makes excellent use of the jab. Um, these are actually two of the busiest jabbers around. Russell averages 37.2 thrown per round, and Megsayo is right behind him at 35.2, whereas the featherweight average is 23.1. They're both busier than average fighters. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking once the bell rings. We've already discussed the efficiencies <laughs> and Russell's busyness in other ways. Um, but in, in terms of jabs and power punches, they're both pretty busy. So the big question for me is between his speed and his southpaw style, how much will Gary Russell handcuff Magsayo? And, and, you know, can Magsayo drag him into an exciting fight, which is almost certainly what he needs um, if it's a boxing match fought from a safe distance Russell wins going away, provided he's roughly the same guy in 2022 that he was in 2020. So far, that hasn't been an issue. He's had long layoffs and come back just fine. Um, Anyway, Magsayo has never faced a southpaw anywhere near Russell's level. So it's hard to know how that'll affect him. But I do hope he can fight better defensively than he did against Seha. Uh, Russell's high power punch connect percentage and Magsayo's high percentage for opponents landing power punches against him. Those are concerning if you're uh, looking for a way for the underdog Magsayo to win here. Yep. Uh, the co-feature is a rematch in the 140-pound division. Uh, just like Russell's last fight, this was about two years ago, February 2020, just before COVID shut everything down for a while, on the Fury Wilder 2 undercard. Petros Ananyan of Russia rallied from a slow start to score a knockdown and win a close decision over Subriel Matias of Puerto Rico. We've since been very impressed watching Matias score a pair of knockouts on Showtime over Malik Hawkins and Batir Jukambayev. Uh, their first fight was a 10-rounder. This is a 12-rounder. Ananyan is 16-2-2 with seven knockouts. Matias is trying to avenge the lone blemish on a record of 17-1 with 17 KOs. 
Kieran, looking back on that exciting and dramatic first fight, what are your thoughts on the way it played out? Is it reasonable to use Matias's tragic fight with Maxim Dadashev two fights earlier as a partial excuse for the loss? And any thoughts on Matias's ceiling after seeing him on Showtime a fair amount recently? So if I recall correctly, when we previewed Matias against Malik Hawkins, I picked Hawkins to win based largely on an assumption that that Ananian loss was a reflection of Matias being affected mm. by the Dadashev disaster. I, I just went into that thinking, you know what, it looks to me like the guy just isn't quite the same. And, and, he, and, he's, and he's, you know, he didn't quite have that killer instinct anymore. I was actually surprised subsequently when Matias proved to be not only as effective as he's been, but as violent as he's been in his subsequent outings. I mean, you often find when folks like that are, are in a, a tragic situation like that, that they're always just holding something a little bit back. And I remember being a bit surprised to see that, you know, no, Matias definitely isn't doing that whatsoever. And so I look back on it now and I think to myself, I just wonder, in fact, whether that data chef situation was indeed a, a factor in that loss you know, he was winning comfortably mm -hmm. through six rounds or so of that first fight. Um, at times he was battering Anasian, but then he got caught and, and, he, and he suffered that knockdown and he just didn't recover from that knockdown. I don't mean in the sense that he didn't recover in that, you know, he's wobbling all over the place, but but he basically lost the rest of the fight from yeah. there on, which is, you know. Um, and so maybe... You know, he's just one of those guys who was able to com compartmentalize what happened, that it was folks like myself who were going, oh, look, he's affected by the data chef uh, uh, situation. And in fact, he wasn't. And all that happened is he just got caught with a good shot and he never really managed to get recovered again. And maybe it's just as simple as that. And maybe there's no bigger storyline than that. Uh you know, and, and, and Nassian just happened to have the style and the ability to defeat him down the stretch. What we've seen of Matias since then does not suggest a guy who is, and I'm sure he carries the weight of, of that fight, but he doesn't appear to be haunted and to let it hold him back when he right. gets into the ring now. He does seem, at least in the ring, to have moved on. And again, not just because he's winning, but he's winning really violent. He's a very aggressive, violent kind of fighter. Um but I don't know what his ceiling is. I am still, in some respects, notwithstanding the fact that the guy has 17 KOs from 17 wins and just that one loss, I'm not. I'm still a little bit unconvinced. He is great on offense, but he can be hit. Right. Um, he can be hit a bit too, as is often the case, of course, with very aggressive fighters. He can be hit a bit too cleanly for my liking. I, you know, you look at who all else is ahead of him. He feels an awful way short to me of guys like Taylor and Progre. Is he a Zepeda, Pedraza level kind of fighter, potentially? He might be. Um, I feel like, I don't think Subriel Matias is ever going to be, especially at age 29, the undisputed king of the division. But he has enough in him, especially offensively, that on a good night, he could be almost anybody. Mm and be at least for a brief period a title holder. But I don't know that he even definitely has that in him. I still think we need to see him up a level to see exactly what he has, because it's often the case, I think, with these very offensive-minded fighters that they can get unstuck yeah. when they just step up that level against that technically better kind of fighter. And I think still that might be the case with Matias. But to be perfectly honest, 
I've been a little bit of a doubter about him, like I said, about thinking about Dadashev, thinking, you know, writing him off after the Yanassian loss. And he's consistently proved me wrong so far. So maybe he will do in the future as well. Turning to the opening bout, it is a 10-rounder featuring the last man Gary Russell shared the ring with in Allentown, Pennsylvania, two years ago, King Tug Nyambayar of Mongolia. And he faces Southern California Southpaw Vic Pasias, um, both 122-pounders trying to get back on track after losing their most recent fights. Uh, Nyambayar actually won his next fight after losing to miss. Gary Russell. He beat Kobia Breedy on Showtime. Uh, but then he lost the unanimous decision to the highly talented Chris Colbert to bring his record to 12 and 2 with nine KOs. Uh, Perseus was undefeated until he ran into Rice, the beast Aleem, on Showtime almost exactly one year ago. He got stopped in round 11 to 4 to 16 and won with nine KOs. Both of these fighters are 29 years old. And it's not quite a make or break fight, but it all feels close. Um, Eric, we're pretty familiar with both of these fighters at this point. Um, give me what you see as the biggest strength and biggest weakness for both. And, and is there anything you're looking for stylistically here that might determine which way this one goes? Biggest strength and biggest weakness. Uh, uh, I kind of feel like Al Bernstein doing the keys to victory here. Uh, there you so, go. Uh, first, King Tug. His strength is his one-punch power. You know, he's not a 122-pound Deontay Wilder or anything, but he can pop. He was knocking out everybody until he stepped up to the world-class level. He even buzzed Chris Colbert with an overhand right on route to defeat in that fight. And he's bigger and taller than yeah. Paseas. He's a natural featherweight who's fought at 130. Uh, so his power might be even more pronounced in this matchup. King Tug's weakness, punch output. Just not enough sometimes. He, he, he gets outworked. He stands there waiting for the perfect opening. And he's just very inconsistent from round to round. He nearly lost to Kobe Abridi, despite scoring knockdowns in each of the first two rounds. He just wasn't consistent enough, and he, and he let Breedy back into the fight. And that could be trouble against Vic Pasias, whose top strength, in my view, is activity, especially with power punches. He throws 46.9 power punches per round, almost double the 25.5 of Nyambayar. He lets him fly, even when he was getting his butt kicked by Raiz Halim, uh, which brings me to Pasias' weakness, his defense, and his chin. He got dropped four times in that fight on his way to getting stopped. Halim landed 42% of his power punches. That's troubling. Uh, although King Tug isn't as quick-fisted as Halim. So, in terms of the style matchup... Once again, we have a southpaw factor to consider. Paseas is a southpaw, and Nyambiar's two losses, one came against southpaw Gary Russell, the other against switch hitter Colbert. He did also score a win over a southpaw, Claudio Marrero, although that was a close fight. So I think the big question here is, facing another southpaw, will King Tug let his hands go a little more and apply pressure, or will he stand around staring at Paseas while Paseas possibly <laughs> piles up some points? So let's make our predictions for the card. Uh, we come in tied at one point apiece, and it's my turn to pick first. And I'll start with the fight that I just analyzed, Nambiar Paseas. I have a pretty good idea how good King Tug is at this point. We've seen him enough against enough different styles and qualities of opposition. Paseas is a little more of a mystery. He's mostly looked great in his career, but then looked way out of his depth against Aleem. But maybe Aleem is elite or close mm -hmm. to it. I I've expressed before an opinion that Aleem seems to me good enough to be competitive with a Stephen Fulton if they were to make that fight. So maybe Paseas is better than he looked in that fight. 
But I think King Tug's edges in size, power, and experience will prove too much. I'll say the fact that this is a 10-rounder helps Paseas get to the finish line. I think he's in trouble and fading in rounds 9 and 10, but makes it to the end. And here's the reading of a clear-cut unanimous decision for Nayam Bayar. Yeah, um, I initially found it a, a bit of a difficult pick. Um, and I think partly because of that uncertainty about Paseas and also focusing somewhat on, on their defeats as well as their wins. You know, as we've talked about, both guys have lost recently, but I agree with you. Uh, I think the caliber of opposition that they've lost against is, is, is the very highest caliber of opposition. And it's a particular type of opposition too, isn't it? I mean, all the guys we've talked about, they're slick, they're fast, they're boxer punches, yeah. they've got great skill. Mayambeya's faced, I think, the higher caliber of opposition. I think he's got wins over the higher caliber of opposition. He does have reach and height advantages here. He isn't, you know, the most exciting, as you said, at times. He is able, you know, he is solid technically as well, I think, uh, as well as as having that power. I do think, at least at the moment, you're probably going to have to be on another level to beat him. I, I don't think the Paseas is on that other level. The only question to me is indeed whether it makes the, whether this fight goes the distance or not. And I do think that actually the fact that King Tug is, how can we put it, methodical at times mm -hmm. is going to work actually in Paseas' favor. I, I see a fairly similar fight to you, actually. I, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if Paseas gets off to a better start of the two guys because he is going to be the more active, I think, from the from the start. Sometimes Nyambayar can get a little while to get going, but I think he is going to get going. He's going to hurt Paseas. And I think as he comes forward, I think, and, and hurts Paseas, Paseas' uh, punch output is going to drop. <laughs> Is he going to stop him late or not? Is this early enough in the contest that it's time to start going out on a limb and trying to get some separation here? Yeah, screw it. Um, he's going to hurt Paseas in the ninth. And it might be a controversial stoppage. The referee might step in a little bit too soon and Paseas might protest. But I think I'm going to go ahead... Just, you know, let's get some excitement. With the confidence of being the defending champion, yes. I'm going to say that Nayan Bayar gets a possibly slightly controversial stoppage in a fight that he was going to win anyway, and that stoppage comes in the ninth. Oh, you are a wild man, Mulvaney. You are living Look on the me. edge. 2022, baby. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, as for Ananya Matias, is it possible that Ananya is simply Matias's Ken Norton? I don't think so. Uh, Matias was battering him for the first half of their first fight. He got caught. Maybe, you know, like I said, maybe it's time to let it go, but maybe it's also possible he's carrying the burden of the Dadashev fight. Honestly, I just think everything just happened to go right for Ananian on that night in that he was losing a fight, kept himself in it, scored just the right punch, and for whatever reason... Matias on that night just simply wasn't able to recover, whether he was still shook up from that punch, uh, whether something else was going on in his head, or whether he just, once he got hurt, couldn't quite figure out how to respond because he hadn't been in that situation before, or whether Ananian's style just made it difficult for him to come back in. But I think this fight is going to be much more like the first half of the first fight than the second half of the first fight. Everything we've seen of Matias since then suggests that he's 
perfectly happy to start a fight in fifth gear and just keep going from there on. He gets hit a bit too much, and he's going to get hit during this. But I think he's simply the better fighter than Ananyan, and I think he's going to come out and be Subriel Matias. And I think he's going to finish the job that he started, and he's going to stop Ananyan in round seven. Okay. Uh, first, I should say, before I talk about my thoughts on this rematch, just what an outstanding fight their first bout was. Yeah. I, I'd kind of forgotten about it, um, but revisiting the, it this week, tremendous fight that we didn't pay much attention to because Fury Wilder 2 stole our attention, right. and then this whole pandemic thing he started, and this fight got very much lost in the shuffle. I listened back to see what we said about it on the podcast at the time, and we didn't. We ignored it. Uh, we, we, we had two guests that week, both uh, Matt Christie and some guy named Roy Jones was also on the pod. Never heard of him. Uh, so uh, I, we did not make time to discuss Ananyan Matias, uh, but I'm glad this rematch is happening. I'm looking forward to it. And I do think it was, for whatever reason or reasons, an off night for Matias. He faded. Maybe his heart wasn't in it during training camp, and then that came mm. to bear in the second half of the fight. I don't know. I'll note the knockdown call was debatable, and it would have been a draw without that yeah. knockdown call. So I'm predicting revenge here, as you are. Matias is fighting better now. His head is cleared. I think with 12 rounds to work with, he's that much more likely to get a stoppage, although... I guess the 12 round factor doesn't matter in my pick, just as it didn't matter in yours. Uh, but we don't have the same round. I'm saying Matias KO 10. And on to the main event, Russell Magsayo, where I think this is a terrible style matchup for Magsayo. Uh, look, mm -hmm. Russell is a bad matchup for almost everybody, both yeah. in terms of style and skill. But Magsayo in particular, I could see him beating some top 10 featherweights, the ones who like to stand and fight and have normal hand speed, but that ain't Russell. Uh, again, a little bit of a leap of faith to assume Russell hasn't lost a half step since we last saw him, but I will take that leap. And I'll also say he's not going to take huge risks to get the stoppage. Maybe he lands so many punches that the accumulation causes Mike Sayo's corner or the ref to stop it, but I think slightly more likely is a distance fight. I'm saying Mr. Gary Russell Jr. by unanimous decision. Yeah, look, one day Gary Russell's age and inactivity will count against him. Uh, next Saturday is not going to be that day. Um, as we talked about, notwithstanding his inactivity, he's in fantastic condition, Russell. His technique remains on point. He lives in the gym. And, you know, and I think his ring presence is aided by the fact that he's clearly just an extremely calm and centered personality anyway. Maxayo deserves a ton of respect. Uh, he's dangerous. He hits like a mule, as we saw, and as Julio Seja can, can attest to. But as you talked about early on, boy, can he be hit. Um, and he can be out, outboxed. And he's going to be both. Um, it's, it's possible that Maxayo can find something and land the perfect shot, but nobody else has been able to do it on Gary Russell. It's possible he's going to be able to out-hustle Russell, but nobody else... Out-hustle Russell. But nobody else has been <laughs> able to. Honestly, if Russell were a bit younger and had been a bit more active, uh -huh, um, I might actually pick him to stop Maxayo simply by using the Filipino's aggression against him. I think he's the kind of fighter who might be meat and drink in that respect for Russell. But I do agree with you. I think, and for me, I think it, it's particularly the fact that he's going to be feeling his way back in a little bit after a couple of years out and after everything he's gone through. And so I agree with you that I think the W is what's going to matter here. 
Uh, maybe he'll have a bit of difficulty early. Well, if not difficulty, maybe Magsaya will score some points early on. But I think Russell's going to settle down. He'll start picking him off on the counter uh, by rounds three, four, and five. And then I almost imagine Maxeo sort of going into a shell. I think that's mm. going to be what protects him, I think, and sees him get to the end. I think he's going to get caught so much on the counter that he's going to dial back his aggression. And that's actually what's going to enable him to make it to the end. But I do agree that it's going to be a not terribly close unanimous decision for Gary Russell Jr. Okay. Uh, we move on now to the tweet of the week, and uh, I'm going to have to send you this one, Kieran, so you can uh, watch it and react, and we'll we'll drop the audio in, into well. the podcast. It it is from KT underscore boxing. Uh, nothing noteworthy about the tweet itself, but it's a great clip of Joe Frazier talking about George Foreman from a documentary. I guess uh, I'm not sure what it's from exactly. I don't believe I had seen it before. It's just a 15 second clip, and it's one of those wait for it clips uh so here it is I, i've sent it to you uh when you're ready okay. go ahead and uh press play all right i got it right here let's have a look at what we've got here george had me down two about 14 times in the two fights maybe one of these days uh i'll probably come out with a fraser grill and i'll break it over his head <laughs> 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 yep, you, you you think you know where it's going, and then I'm gonna come up with a Fraser grill. Pause, and I'm gonna break it over his head. Hilarious, That's and fantastic. so so very Joe Fraser. Uh, always bitter, sometimes with a twinkle in his eyes, sometimes not. In this yep. case, I'll say twinkle. I think he knows he's being funny, so. but uh, there you have it. Joe Fraser wanting to smash George Foreman over the head with a foreign object. I'm naming it my tweet of the week. That's fantastic. I wonder where that came from. I've never seen that before. Yeah, I don't that know. Was, that was terrific. Yeah, I'll, I'll remember that, you know, you talk about the fact that he was always bitter. I'll never forget that he was once asked about what he felt about Muhammad Ali lighting the cauldron at the Atlanta Olympics. Yep. <laughs> and he said something to the effect of, I wish I'd been there to shove him in. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Like, you know, he was he, he had that super bitterness toward Ali because of the way Ali treated him as much right. as anything else. But yeah, like he said, the fact that he begins it with going, yeah, he knocked me down like however many times. Uh, yeah, he knows George had the beaten of him, but that that was funny. I like that. Yeah, there's maybe a little bit of, uh, but by him bringing the grill into it, it's even just a little bit of financial <laughs> jealousy on top of everything exactly. else. Exactly. All right. It is time for the news. And our main event this week is not hilarious at all. Um, It's a massive lawsuit uh, with welterweight titleist and top pound-for-pound fighter Terrence Bud Crawford seeking more than $5 million from his former promoter, Top Rank. But it's not the money or even the legal claims, uh, breach of contract, fraudulent and negligent misrepresentation that have people talking. It's Crawford alleging racial bias. The Sioux argues that Bob Arum, quote, continues to make racist and bigoted statements and purposefully damages the reputations of black boxers. The suit says Arum has a history of favoring his white and Latino fighters over his black fighters. Uh, Arum called the lawsuit, quote, frivolous and uh, a, quote, malicious extortion attempt uh there are various details about ways in which top rank failed to deliver certain fights for crawford but it is the race related angle that stirred up most of the conversation uh eric if you have any legal insight i'd love to hear it but more pertinently what do you make of these accusations of racism against bob arum yeah i'll say right off the top i have absolutely no legal insight i'm not a lawyer 
didn't take any remotely pre-law type classes in college. And whenever I have to read something written in legalese, my eyes glaze over. Le- legal writing offends me as a professional user of words. <laughs> um, the boxing world has plenty of people with law degrees in it. Steven Espinoza, Lou DiBella, Kurt Amoff, ask one of them. Um, so uh, I will talk about the the accusations of racism. These are delicate matters, of course. Yep. Uh, a little dangerous to talk about, but I think it's good to talk about them better than just pretending racism, systemic or otherwise, doesn't exist. And I don't think it's right to just dismiss things Aram has said as, oh, that's just Bob being Bob. He's 90 years old. He lost his filter years ago. He says what's on his mind, and it might rub people the wrong way. That doesn't make him a racist. I'm not saying he is a racist. I'm just saying you can't just wave it all off under the banner of Bob being Bob. I will say race has always been a huge part of boxing. Not always racism, but at least playing up racial angles. That's been a central tenet of boxing promotion since forever. Uh, There's the well-known black versus white stuff like Jack Johnson versus Jim Jeffries, Larry Holmes versus Jerry Cooney. But ethnicity, nationality, that's often how you sell a fight. Uh, The Irish guy headlining at Madison Square Garden on St. Patrick's Day, the, the Mexican fighter on Cinco de Mayo or Mexican Independence Day, and so on. There's no racism in that, I wouldn't say, but let's just say racial awareness is a huge part of boxing promotion, maybe bigger historically than in any other sport. I think we can all agree Terrence Crawford is not a huge seller. Certainly his star power is not equal to his boxing ability. So how much of that is because Aram failed to market him effectively? Look, Aram has admitted he dropped the ball with not knowing how to best market Floyd Mayweather. Um, But how much is it that and how much is it that Crawford doesn't have a big personality or for reasons beyond his promoter's control didn't build a big fan base outside of Omaha I do think Aram would be the first to admit actually I think he has admitted as much that he's had better success the last 25 years or so promoting Latino fighters than black fighters or white fighters is that because of something he's doing or is that just a reflection of the fan base uh, this is a topic with a million layers. I realize I'm offering yeah. no answers, but my, my bottom line, regardless of how the lawsuit plays out, is I think it's a good thing for Terrence Crawford to get the boxing world talking about this subject. Now, he might be setting himself up for a big countersuit for defamation. I have no idea. Um, but the race angle is fascinating here. And as a media member, I can't look away from this car crash. This is a promoter-fighter relationship ending about as badly as it can, which is selfishly a good thing for podcast discussion. Um, Sorry if I kind of wrap that up by minimizing the hell out of this issue, but um, that's kind of where I land on it. And Anything to add, Kieran, or or anything I said that you'd like to publicly distance yourself from? No, I, I, I mean, what you just said, I, I, I made some notes on, on, on the situation and very much what you just said reflected a lot of, of what I put down. I mean, first of all, look, I think that the reason Terence Crawford isn't the biggest star has much more to do with Terence Crawford. Um, anyone who's had to deal with him in a media contest, I like Terence and I've done a lot of interviews with him, but God, he's, he's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's never really seemed to understand the importance of, of doing some media. I think he's gotten a lot better. I mean, I haven't interviewed him since, you know, he top rank left HBO. So that, that's four years. And, and I get the impression he's probably gotten better as it's gone along, but goodness me, he is, his, 
he was difficult to sell early right. on, even though he was a t- terrific, terrific boxer. Uh, and I'm also, I was also, I think another factor is, I think a lot of us were very surprised when he re-upped with Bob Arum at around that same time, not necessarily because of any personal issues with Arum, but because it was evident that the bigger fights were to be made on the other side of the street. Yeah. And, and that was a surprise that Crawford sort of siloed himself there. So I think that's, those are clearly factors. If you're just looking at the lawsuit in terms of you know, career opportunities missed and so on and so forth, I think a lot of that is on Terence Crawford. As for the other issue, look, I have no idea. Even after being around the guy a lot, or a reasonable man, if Bob Arum is racist, I, I simply don't know. That said, he certainly is the kind of person, and you refer to this as like, you know, maybe it's written off as Bob being Bob, but I can imagine that if this were to go ahead as being a court case, they could just spend half a day playing God knows how many sound bites yeah. over the last 30, 40 years or so, where, you know, he's, he's making what we can just describe as racially charged comments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you don't know boxing and you don't know Bob and you don't know Conte, you say, Oh my God. <laughs> right. But yeah, the note that I did make, yeah, he comes from an age where it was okay to talk openly about, you know, the merits of Jewish fighters versus Irish fighters or black fighters against Asian fighters. And yes, like you said, uh, uh, race and, and ethnicity has been a big part of boxing for a long time and continues to be. Uh, and I'm sure that if he wanted to, he can find character witnesses from the likes of George Foreman to to, to sort of say that he that he isn't racist. But I I suspect that Aram is not so much biased against any color as much as he's biased in favor of one color, which is green. <laughs> but that said, obvious point, I'm white. Yeah. Um, I Not only do I not experience the kind of, you know, prejudice, both explicit and systemic, that, that Crawford and other African-American fighters and African-Americans generally experience, but I am inherently even though I look, I consider myself, you know, a, a pretty woke kind of person, but I'm inevitably somewhat oblivious to that day-to-day ongoing racism that is such a fundamental part of the lives of even the most successful African Americans. It, it's just a part of their life, and they're attuned to it. Yeah. You know, a lot of folks they'll they'll notice subtleties that will just escape folks like you and me because we don't have to deal with it and we're not affected by it and so yeah for that very reason i'm the same as you do i think bob adam is a racist i just don't know am i prepared to dismiss the possibility absolutely not um i'm i'm i guess if i if i you know what's interesting for me is that i guess my immediate you know you said it was a good thing that that terence got this discussion going i guess my immediate reaction was damn why is he doing this this seems to be like a difficult thing that he's opening himself up to here. What's the benefit to him for doing it if he's just moving away from that contract anyway? But, you know, maybe it just bothers him enough. Maybe he's seen enough things and heard enough things that he's just like, you know what? I can't let this go. Hmm. So I I don't know. I'm very curious. I, I have to approach it from the perspective that I'm inevitably fundamentally ignorant about as much as I try not to be, about some of the things that Crawford is alleging here. And I don't know. I'm very curious to see what happens. Yeah. 
Right. One thing I will say is I never expected this relationship to break down so acrimoniously like this. Like, even, like from the beginning, from the first few years, Aram seems to be very proud of Terence Crawford and wanting right. to push him. And Crawford himself wanted to re-up. I don't know what's happened in the last few years other than perhaps frustration and not getting these fights for this to break down, not just break down as a fighter promoter relationship that happens, but to have clearly been this entirely different level of acrimony. Right. Yeah. And it, it does make you wonder again, we're sort of all amazed that Bob Arum is still working as much as he is at age 90 at a certain point that it, you have to think in his mind, he reaches the, you know what? It's really not worth it for me for me to yeah. stay out there anymore. Just uh, enjoy enjoy your latter years and uh, you know going down the uh, the legal road of this and having to defend himself against these accusations. It's uh, probably not what he wanted to be doing at age ninety. But yeah. Um, all right, that's probably enough of two middle aged white guys giving their analysis right. of the situation. Although I, I assume the story will continue to unfold and we'll uh, have some opportunities to revisit it. Um, a good chunk of the rest of the news segment this week surrounds COVID impacting fights and fighters. We said last week, get used to positive tests and postponements. More are coming. And indeed, since our last show, Jose Ramirez versus Jose Pedraza was postponed from February 5th to March 4th due to Pedraza contracting COVID. Jesse Vargas has COVID, so his fight against Liam Smith, also scheduled for February 5th, has been postponed. No new date yet. They're hoping to just back it up by a couple of weeks. And Kiko Martinez has reportedly tested positive, but his fight with Josh Warrington that we noted on last week's show is still more than two months away on March 26th, so there's no plan to change the date yet. Kieran, any quick thoughts on any of this? Not really, to be honest. Sorry to disappoint. Um, obviously, we've talked about this for you know going on two years now um i guess the only thing to say is to hope that i well to say that it appears that we're really fortunate that this most transmissible of strains does not appear to be the most potent of strains right. and for that we seem to have dodged a major bullet um of and then i get Again, obviously, the problem is there are just so many cases that, that healthcare workers and hospitals are being overwhelmed, which is why the UK, I think, did such a good job of suspending boxing uh, for, for a month. I just hope that so virulent is this strain that it's going to sort of help us burn through this yeah. and get through to the other side. And I hope, not just for boxing, but for all of us, that this is now the beginning of the end. I, I hope so. Uh, a quick roundup of other news. Uh, a plus one fight that took place in the past week that's worth commenting on. Let's start with that. Uh, Joe Smith Jr. retained his light heavyweight belt with a ninth round KO. A very late sub, uh, Steve Jaffrard, on Saturday at night at Turning Stone Casino in Verona, New York. Uh, Jaffrard was game for a while, but ultimately couldn't keep up. And Smith called out Artur Bedebiev uh, after. Uh, back to the outside the ring business. We talked about accusations against Raleigh Romero when they came out last fall. Uh, he posted on Instagram Tuesday, and we should emphasize that this is from him. Mm -hmm. um, quote, the investigation into the allegations made against me has been formally closed. Charges were not filed because the allegations could not be substantiated because... As I always stated, I am innocent. Uh, in other news, the Tyson Fury Dillian White purse bid has been delayed at least one week. My prediction that this would all be sorted out 
a week ago is looking worse and worse. Uh, Chris Eubank Jr. against Liam Williams is confirmed to be delayed by just one week and is now scheduled for February 5th. And boxing scenes Keith Eidek reported that the February 26th Showtime Championship boxing card will be headlined by Chris Colbert against Roger Gutierrez, although Showtime has not yet officially announced it. Uh, anything you would like to comment on? Yeah, uh, I'll hit on the Raleigh Romero news first. Uh, it remains complicated. Um, allegations could not be substantiated isn't the same as innocent. Uh, and mm. also, as you said, his Instagram account is the only place that I saw this news reported. So let's put that very important asterisk in there. But if there are no pending charges, nobody should be able to stop him from resuming his boxing career. I still think it was 100% correct to pull him out of I the Javante right. fight while it was investigated. He lost a few months. Now he should be able to pick up where he left off. Fury White keeps dragging out. I guess we'll just have a weekly non-update update on that <laughs> for a while. Um, I'm always glad to hear Chris Colbert is returning to the network. And I understand the Borgata in Atlantic City is, again, a possible venue. I had hoped to go to Russell Magsayo live, but with Omicron with the virus, in fact, finally making its way into my household. Uh, I have no intention of making that drive to AC this Saturday. Hopefully the COVID situation will be a lot better in late February and this fight will be in AC. And if so, if both of those ifs come in, I am there. Um, and as for Joe Smith's win, not a lot to say. He looked fine, not great. Jafard was a little better than most of us expected him to be. And if we're not going to get Canelo versus Better BF next, and it's quite clear we are not, then I'm plenty good with Better BF versus Smith. Yeah. I hope they make that fight. It can't not be exciting. Okay, it's been a little while since we put out a mailbag call, so we did just that this week, and we got some interesting questions. We're keeping it brief, just three questions, as it hasn't been a short show, and uh, we still have the top five list to get to. But here goes with some of the questions sent in from the listeners. We'll start with one from Derek Xavier Morris at Boxing underscore Ramble. He suggests a top five list, but I think this works just fine as something where we just give one or two answers instead of five. He says, in order of preference, which five historical boxing figures, fighter, trainer, manager, or promoter, would you have loved to have had as a guest on your show and why? So, Kieran, uh, no need to give me five, but uh, one or two that stand out? There's one obvious one, and I don't think it actually needs an explanation as to why, and that's Muhammad Ali. Yep. <laughs> um, we would have lost control of that interview very, very swiftly. Uh, he would have completely taken control, but I don't think either of us would have cared. I think it would have been worth it, and, and especially if we were able to get him on one of those occasions where you know he wanted to be serious and, and talk about some broader issues, I think it would have been illuminating. Uh, I would have absolutely loved to have been around and had the opportunity to talk to Muhammad Ali you know and and a second one I, I will go with one of his former rivals uh Sonny Liston hmm. uh, I have no idea what he would have been like as an interview I don't know whether he would have been forthcoming or not but there is so much mystery and myth and legend surrounding him um this is predicated on his actually being somewhat open and honest, and I, and I don't know if any of those things would would have happened. But damn, I would love, I would have loved to be able to sit down and get his take on, you know, Lewiston, the mob, all of these kind of things. Right. If, like I said, it's predicated on a circumstance that might not have actually happened. But oh, what a, that would have been interesting. Yeah, uh, Ali obviously was uh, one of the first names that jumped out at me too. But 
I sat for a minute and tried to think of someone maybe a tiny bit less obvious as well. <laughs> and this is someone a little less historical, a little more recent. But how about Johnny Tapia? Um, oh, I, great, cool. I, I spoke to him once. Uh, he had such a lovability, but also so many demons. Could have been an amazing podcast conversation. And then I'll actually tell you the first name I thought of when I saw this question. It was not Ali. He was the second name I thought of. The first one that crossed my mind was Emmanuel Stewart. Um, oh, yeah. I had the pleasure of speaking to him plenty of times, and I believe you did too. Yep. One of my favorite people in this sport, gone far too soon, died a year or two before you and I started podcasting together, he would have been a great semi-regular guest to have on the old HBO pod or on this podcast. Oh, so informative as well. Yeah. And, and and such a nice and generous man. So yeah, no, completely agree with you. That would have been fantastic. Good call. Um, next, here's one from Tom Clark. Uh, he writes, I enjoyed your thoughts on Ward versus Hopkins. So here's another dream fight between greats who narrowly missed each other. Lennox Lewis versus Tyson Fury. Who you got? Well, I just mentioned Emmanuel Stewart. Uh, this is his best heavyweight against a fighter he identified early on as a potential future heavyweight great. Boy, oh boy, what a tough fight to call. Um, Lennox yeah. was the bigger puncher, but he also had the worst chin, or, or at least the worst recuperative powers after his chin would get cracked. Right. Lennox had a fairly orthodox style for a big heavyweight, whereas... Fury gets points for awkwardness. I guess I lean towards saying that if Wilder could catch Fury and drop him in two of their three fights, then Lennox could too, and maybe Fury doesn't get up if Lennox lands his right hand clean. I think if they fought 100 times, I'll say Lennox wins like 60 of them. Yeah, I've actually contemplated this from time to time. It's, it's one of those fights that sort of pops into your head, you know, when you're like brushing the, your teeth or or in the shower or something, you know. I, I don't know the answer, but I do think that if anyone would have had a decent shot against Fury, it would have been Lennox. Um, similar height and reach. Um, and then Lennox, you know, has the technique and the skills. And I also think he had the mentality. I don't think he would have been psyched out by Fury. And... He was always so calm in the ring as well, Lennox, and I think that would have been important. But I also think that he had the ability and the technique to not like waste his punches trying to hit Fury in the head while while Fury's you know sort of doing the Ali thing up against the ropes. I see Lennox like jabbing Fury in the chest all night and, and sort of slowing him down, and then looking to land that overhand right when it presented itself. And Lennox also would neither be afraid to wrap up Fury when he needed to, and he'd have the size and the strength to do it as well. Yeah, not an easy fight for either man, but I agree with you. I, I would make Lennox the favorite there, I think. Okay, uh, and last one. This is an interesting one, uh, also involving the heavyweights. It's from Corey R. He asked simply, if AJ had beaten Usyk, would he have gotten any credit for it? Or was that a fight where he took on maximum risk for no reward? This is a great question. Yeah. I think it depends on how he did it. Um, maybe he wouldn't have gotten any credit for it if he'd just blown him out. Because there would have been a lot of, well, as it turns out, AJ was just too darn big for him talk. Um, I think he might have gotten the most credit, and this might sound a bit odd, if he'd struggled with him initially. If Usyk had underlined his boxing skills, shown himself able to take some big heavyweight punches before AJ eventually figured him out and was eventually able to overcome him. I, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, he would have gotten more credit by struggling with him and then winning perhaps 
definitively and by knockout sort of in like around the ninth round. And it was funny, as I was considering that, I thought to myself, oh, I almost understand why AJ said what he said about wanting to prove he could outbox him because <laughs> right. of the sense that going in there and blowing him out, he wouldn't have gotten any credit for it. But I do think that's a really good question. Like folks like you and I um, and, and other folks who'd analyzed the fight and know Usyk you know, and what he was able to do, I think we would have given AJ credit, whatever, because we all knew how good that Usyk was. But I think in like the, the, the broader sense, yeah, I think I think he would have gotten credit if he'd had to fight his way through adversity and been able to, sc- to, to score the knockout. That way, I think he would have gotten some credit. Yeah, I had the exact same thought that, that he only gets a, a, a good amount of credit if he falls behind and struggles, as he did. And thus we get to see Usyk proving he can hang with the big boys. And then AJ digs in and pulls it out by knocking Usyk out. And there would still be criticism. Jeez, he was losing to a cruiserweight. Um, But I I think he would ultimately get credit for a great win or at least a good win. Uh, Sort sort of like Joe Lewis beating Billy Kahn. That's sort of the how Mm. we're envisioning it uh, possibly having played out. Um, But yeah, undoubtedly losing did more to hurt his reputation than winning would have done to help it. And, you know, the same might be true for Tyson Fury if he fights Usyk. Indeed. All right. Okay. Final segment. It is time for this week's top five list. Uh, Last week, you sent me a challenge, and it was a good one, uh, to come up with five fights from the 12-round era that I wish had been 15-rounders. And we did agree that a a perhaps obvious principal criterion was they had to have gone the full 12 rounds. and as I alluded to early uh, at the intro to the podcast, you know how we frequently say with these lists, oh, man, I'm sure I've missed some and listeners are going to let us know about it. This week, I am super convinced I have forgotten a bunch and our listeners are really going to let us know about it unless you come in and save the day with 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 a, a whole bunch uh, yourself. Um, I have a suspicion that there are some obvious classics that have slipped my mind here. Uh, but anyway, here we go. I had a couple of different approaches to which ones I wanted. Uh, some Basically, I don't think it's really much of a spoiler to say that basically I think they, they fall into two camps here. There's the, oh my God, this is 12 rounds of such incredible violence. I wish it had never stopped. Yep. And the by the end of 12 rounds, we, the result wasn't definitive. Would three more rounds have made a difference kind of a yep. thing? Um, that Those are basically the categories. So here we go. At number five. We travel back in time to June 12th, 1989, and the rematch between Sugar Ray Leonard and Thomas Hearns. Uh, Leonard had, of course, famously come back from being down on all the scorecards to stop Hearns in the 14th round in 1981. By the time of the rematch, Leonard had retired and unretired at least twice already, and 15-round fights had been retired as well. And as with the first fight, It was Hearns who took the lead, uh, this time dropping Leonard twice and seemingly being well on the way to uh, a revenge decision when the judges didn't necessarily agree. And certainly Leonard rallied strongly in the 12th. He actually had Hearns reeling pretty badly in that 12th round, so much so that one judge actually scored it 10-8 for Leonard, which was enough for Sugar Ray to earn that controversial split draw. Hearns has insisted since in the years that he was he was pretty you know magnanimous uh, in the immediate aftermath, but as time has gone on, he's insisted that he won the fight, and Leonard's actually agrees <laughs> yeah. these days. But what if there had been three more rounds, especially looking at how things were in that twelfth round? Would we actually have had a repeat of 1981 
with Leonard rallying and stopping Hearns late. Yeah, that's it's a great choice. It's a, it's a fascinating one. Uh, so I didn't craft an exact order myself, but I did come up with what my top five would probably be in some order. And this is one of the ones that I've put just outside of my top five, but uh, certainly sure. a good case for putting it there at five. And it, it basically ticks both of the boxes you were talking about. It was really exciting. There could be three more thrilling rounds ahead, uh, but it's also controversial ending and we don't quite know how it would have played out. And uh, yeah, it would have been fascinating to, to see what happens uh, if there's one more swing of momentum in those extra three rounds. I asked for number four. I'm not sure that either of the fighters involved would endorse the idea of this particular fight lasting another three rounds, especially the guy who actually got the win. But partly for the sheer violence factor alone, and partly also because of the dramatic conclusion, this one does come in at number four, March 16th, 2013. Timothy Bradley, Ruslan Provodnikov. This was hellacious stuff. And Bradley in particular really felt the effects afterward, uh, even though he was the one who came away with the victory. Provodnikov came roaring out of the blocks, rocking Bradley. Bradley consistently in the first two rounds and really being robbed uh, by referee Pat Russell of a legitimate knockdown. Uh, by round three, however, Bradley had, had gotten his feet under him uh, and began to outbox Provodnikov. Although when the Russian broke through, he broke through hard, uh, rattling Bradley with some fierce shots. And then in the 12th, when it seemed as if Bradley had just gotten through the worst and he was on his way to a win, Provodnikov broke through fully. He hurt Bradley badly with a little under a minute to go. And then he decked him officially this time with only 10 seconds. Look, I liked him and I feel bad for suggesting this war should have gone on for longer. And, and given that, that Tim uh, bravely reported that he had, you know, concussion related symptoms for some time afterwards, it's perhaps for the best that this wasn't the 15 rounder. But hey, it would have been incredible to just keep watching. And you do wonder what would have happened, especially after round 12, had they come out for around 13 or 14 or 15. <laughs> So I disagree pretty strongly with this choice for the for the reason that you kind of touched on there. This this would be high on my list of fights. I'm really glad we're only 12 rounds. Just I, I don't want ah, okay. I, I don't want Tim in that ring that night any longer than he was because of the, the damage that the toll that it took on him. I think uh, 12, 12 rounds was just right. Ruslan Paradgov may disagree, but uh, but I'm I'm good with this as a 12 rounder. Yeah, and the only reason that I feel safe saying it is that I know that there's no danger whatsoever of Timothy Bradley being subjected to that for another three rounds, and it's a pretty hypothetical world. Right. Otherwise, yeah, <laughs> in a real-world scenario, I'd probably be up on the ring apron myself calling for, for a halt. <laughs> uh, number three. Um, look, I, I've been fortunate enough to be ringside for some amazing fights, some huge events, and some incredible atmospheres, but I'm not sure I've ever experienced a couple minutes quite like the one on September 15th, 2012, at the Thomas and Mack Center in Las Vegas, when Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. suddenly woke up in his middleweight title fight against Sergio Martinez. For 11 rounds, Chavez had been doing nothing except following Martinez around like a lost puppy as the Argentine boxer outboxed and outfought him every which way. The crowd had started as largely pro Chavez, but it turned against him. Not just for the fact that he was losing, but for the distinctly un-Mexican and un-Chavez way he was doing so. Uh, and then, halfway through the final round, Chavez backed Martinez to the ropes, uncorked a pair of left hooks, and had Martinez down and in desperate trouble. Then Martinez was down again. The only question was whether Chavez had enough time to finish him. He didn't. Uh, Martinez won a wide decision on the basis that he'd fought for 11 and a half rounds and Chavez hadn't. 
And Chavez sort of began his downward spiral into the curious and sad case that he is now. What would have happened had there been a 13th round? You could easily make the case that Chavez would have simply screwed it up for another three rounds and then <laughs> tried to start fighting halfway through the 15th instead of the 12th. Maybe. what we, Given what we know about Chavez Jr., that's entirely possible. Or maybe Martinez would have tired that little bit and just enabled Chavez to to continue to have that effect in the 12th round and Chavez Jr. might have finished him off. Maybe he might have been inspired to, 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 to be a little bit more dedicated and to make more of his career. Probably not. But you do wonder. So it's an interesting choice and, and, and a good one. It's not quite in my top five, um, mostly for the reason that I'm a little more confident than you are that Chavez would have stopped him. Uh, I think if, if, if I'm remembering right, that it was in suffering that knockdown that Martinez tore up his knee somewhat, that kind of he got through another fight on a, on a wobbly knee. Uh, and then, of course, it all came undone against Cotto. And I, I just wonder if he had a knee injury there and had mm. been hurt, uh, how, how he's going to survive three more rounds. So I'm fairly confident Chavez stops him, which does set up all sorts of interesting scenarios about where Chavez's career goes from there. But it robs your boy Cotto of the chance to win the lineal middleweight title. So be careful what you wish for. Ah, yes, there is that. Or maybe he dethrones Chavez Jr. in a glorious Mexico versus Puerto Rico night. I suppose that's uh, that's also a possibility. You sound dubious. Never doubt me, Cotto. <laughs> never? <laughs> sure, let's say never. Um, my top two actually are both on the highly contentious decisions side of the ledger. Uh, decisions that one wishes had clearer resolution and perhaps might have done with the benefit of a few more rounds. The first takes us to September 18th, 1999 at the Mandalay Bay Event Center. Felix Trinidad and Oscar De La Hoya, two unbeaten welterweights, two rival promoters. Explosive action anticipated, but through nine rounds, the lawyer appeared to be in complete control, although he could not know that the ringside judges didn't see it quite that way. Convinced he was far ahead, uh, the lawyer took uh, the advice of Gil Clancy to to just box the move uh, a little bit too literally and focused on the move rather than the box. And that allowed Trinidad really to win the final quarter of the fight and steal the decision win. But what if it had been 15 rounds? Would De La Hoya have paced himself better? Would he have gassed earlier, allowing Trinidad to take a more deserving and clear win? Would he have recognized that he needed to fight harder for longer? Most importantly, would we have had a clearer result one way or the other? Yeah, this is a great choice that I'm almost surprised that you picked it. I, I, it's in my top five. Uh, and I just was wondering if others might see it as a strange choice because the fight wasn't good. Um, mm. But but I have the same curiosity as you. I think Oscar fights differently if it's scheduled for 15. Maybe it doesn't even go 12. You know, maybe if it's scheduled for 15, uh, he right. fights uh, more aggressively and goes after Trinidad and, and he gets caught and who knows, one of them could score a knockout. I'd be very curious to see how it plays out. Maybe it has more ebbs and flows a la Leonard Hearns one with a few more rounds to play with. I'm with you. Uh, easily the worst actual fight uh, on the list. Yes. Um, but one that definitely requires a cleaner resolution. We never got the rematch. Uh, I would be very curious to see how this plays out as a 15 rounder. Number one, not terribly dissimilar in some respects, the granddaddy 
of 12-round controversial decisions, April 6th, 1987, the super fight. Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler, uh, Leonard coming out of his second retirement, I think, at this point to take on undisputed middleweight champ Hagler. Hagler, of course, just giving away the the opening couple of rounds by boxing orthodox instead of southpaw. But he was the aggressor for much of the rest of the fight. But he was playing catch up already after just the first few rounds. Leonard, meanwhile, was following the bellowed instructions to stick and move and then flurrying for the final 30 seconds of each round to steal enough frames to earn the split decision win. Even as Hagler was coming on at the end, what would another three rounds have done? Uh, Judge Jojo Guerra's card was irredeemable. Um, He gave Leonard 10 of 12. So were he to continue scoring the fight the same way, uh, it would have made no difference. But the other two cards were close. They were 115-113 affairs. Would Leonard have been able to steal as many rounds if he'd had to go 15? Would Hagler's older legs have betrayed him over the longer distance? Um, Surely those rounds that Hagler lost at the beginning of the fight would have been less prominent. Um, Look, given that Marvin Hagler gave away everything in terms of pre-fight negotiation, you can imagine that Leonard would have said to him, even in a 15-round era, ah, let's make it 12 rounds. And Hagler would have said, yes, anyway, convinced that he would have knocked Leonard out. That notwithstanding, let's assume that it had to be 15 rounds. One way or the other, rather like number two, would those extra three rounds have enabled us to have a definitive winner and denied us, fairly or unfairly, 35 years and change <laughs> of argument. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, this is a definite top fiver for me. And... Um, you know, I think most people are of the opinion that when it was over, Leonard was spent, had nothing left. He had paced himself just enough to get through 12 rounds and that additional rounds, I think a lot of people would say they lean Hagler's way, even though Leonard had himself a fine 12th round, but that he really emptied the tank there. Uh, Ray himself claims that he would have paced himself differently if it were a 15 rounder. Um I'm not sure that that I believe it coming off the layoff. He was maybe uh, 12 might have been all that he could have possibly had in him. But I don't know. I, I would love to see how it plays out. Just like you. This is one of those uh, questions will never get answered, but it would be fascinating to see how this is different with three more rounds. Yeah, uh, I had a f- I had a few honorable mentions. Barrera Morales won and Pacquiao Marquez won that were great fights with highly contentious decisions. The only reason I didn't include them is we did wind up with a 13th round and a 14th and a True. 15th and all, all the way up there. And maybe if, if, if there'd been something more definitive in the results of those first fights, we wouldn't have gotten the rest of the, that sequence. Maybe. I thought about Fury Wilder won, but I just feel the story of that fight fits so perfectly in those 12 rounds um, and the way in which Fury, you know, went down and got up in that final round with three more rounds have been an anticlimax. Um, I kind of hate to change that. Mm. Might three more rounds have given us a definitive winner in Mayweather Castillo won? And if it had, how much would have, that have changed boxing history if that winner had been Castillo? Uh, and then two, I included just for the sheer, like, I don't want to stop watching this fight, uh, Francisco Vargas, Orlando Salido. Mm. And even though there was no obvious circumstance, it would have been a 15 rounder because it wasn't a world title fight. 
Aikabeabuchi and David Tua. Hmm, that's an interesting one that I didn't think of. Yeah, these are good ones. Uh, that uh, so you named all of the other three that I put in the top five that that you didn't, and you made good cases for why not to put them in the top five. Fury Wilder one is in there for me, um, and my only hesitation on that was that. Um, if the first fight plays out differently, maybe we never get that amazing third fight. Right. Um, but you also raise a good point I hadn't thought about that maybe we get an anticlimactic ending, some holding for three rounds to just get across the finish line or something boring that sort of ruins that perfect ending. That's a good point, but I'm that's still in my top five. And then I had Barrera Morales one and Pacquiao Marquez one in there, even though there is the risk that a different ending changes the rest of the series. They were just great fights that I just want to see them keep going while those fighters were at that stage of their careers. What happens next? I, I And both of the decisions, of course, one a draw, the other a, a close and controversial win for Morales. Uh, could three rounds have changed either of those? Um, Mayweather Castillo, uh, I also thought about. The biggest reason not to put it in the top five for me is that looking back on the scores, they weren't that close. Mayweather won by four, mm-hmm. four, and mm-hmm. five. So three more rounds probably just means we have the same controversial decision. Um, and then the only other one that uh, that you didn't mention that I'll mention, it's actually two fights, Canelo, Triple G, one and two. Um, and I think which of those fights you prefer to see three more rounds of depends on who you were rooting for. If you're a Canelo fan, yeah. you wanted a little more of the first fight. Right. If you're a Triple G fan, you wanted a little more of the second yeah. fight. I would say as <laughs> if, if you're neutral, maybe you lean toward the second fight just because it was the more entertaining uh, bout. But uh, those are those are decisions that might have become more clear with three more rounds. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and I'm sure you agree with me that we've missed something and we're going to hear it from some people who are going <laughs> to come up with their own particular choices. There's got to be something, but I think we covered <laughs> I think we covered the most obvious ones, hopefully. Okay, we'll see. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, there's a chance we'll be back Friday with our first Money Punch edition of 2022. If not, we'll return with Russell McSayo post-fight analysis and more next Monday. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs> <laughs>